Morning, everyone. Um, today's reading is from Ezekiel. Uh, it's chapter 2, verse 1, um, to chapter 3, uh, verse 3. Uh, that's Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1, to Ezekiel uh, 3, verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Their descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, Eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Well, how to follow up on that? (laughs) Sex and old age. A confession. Confession is good for the soul. Um, This is my first time in Westlake since the summer, Um, simply because we have been frequently traveling around France and Switzerland at the Bible School, not because we haven't been wanting to listen to Martin. (laughs) Please do be assured of that. So today and next Sunday, what I would like to do is do a quick overview of the book of Ezekiel. 48 chapters, we will not read all of them, but we will try and see what is the essential message of Ezekiel. I've been reading this book for several weeks now, and this has been extremely helpful as I think about the times in which we are living. But perhaps before getting into the beginning of this book, try and put it into context in terms of its historical setting, and even more importantly, how the Bible hangs together. This is important to know how scripture hangs together. You probably remember that after the period of the judges, God instituted the monarchy. First of all, King Saul, who was later replaced by David, and David was replaced by his son Solomon. 
When Solomon died in 922 BC, Rehoboam, his son, replaced him as king over a, a united kingdom. But that was very short-lived. Because in 930, there was a schism, a, a, a division within the kingdom, and we had two kingdoms, the northern kingdom ruled by Jeroboam, Jeroboam I, because of Jeroboam II later on, and then the southern kingdom, who was ruled over by Rehoboam. Th these two kingdoms were constantly in warfare with each other. And within the northern kingdom in, in particular, there were constant civil wars with one dynasty succeeding to another dynasty, one king to another king, and with many different coup d'etat. In the northern kingdom in particular, but also in the southern kingdom, um, God was dethroned. The covenant was neglected, and morals were at their lowest. And it's within that context of moral decline that God raised up the prophets. And so we're going to look at just a few slides now. I'm afraid they are a little small, but I'll explain them to you as we go along. Um, the, the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve are the, what we call the Twelve Minor Prophets from Hosea right the way through to Malachi. Twelve prophets which, within the Hebrew uh, uh, thinking, belong to one book. The first six prophets from Hosea through to Micah prophesied principally to the northern kingdom. All of them were, were, were preaching to Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Sometimes they were preaching to the surrounding nations like uh, Edom, um, to, to the Assyrians, or Jonah, to, to Nineveh. But the first six prophets preached to the northern kingdom and warned them, if you do not return to the covenant, if you do not maintain covenant faithfulness, judgment will come and you will be deported. And that finally happened, if you can read it, in 722 BC, Israel was deported by the Assyrians some 800 kilometers away to what is also called Mesopotamia. After the uh, northern kingdom having been deported, it was the southern kingdom. And we have three prophets who were teaching and preaching to the southern kingdom. Again, the same message, because the message of the prophets was the same. It was threefold. They denounced sin, they warned of judgment, and they preached restoration. That was really the basic message of all of these 12 prophets. Denounce sin, preach judgment, preach restoration. But the southern kingdom, Judah, also did not listen to the prophets, and so began also a deportation under Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. This deportation or exile took place in three stages, from 597 until 587. 
And the remaining three prophets, therefore Haggai, Zechariah, and uh, Malachi, all preached to the returned exiles. Now you see a little gap between 587, or the green and the blue, 587 and 450. That gap is one that I didn't want to fill in, because it depends on how you calculate the 70 years uh, predicted in Jeremiah. So I just left that empty. It doesn't really matter for what we're doing this morning. So those are the 12 minor prophets, the book of the 12, who predicated to the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, that unless they repented, there would be judgment, there would be exile, but always with the promise of restoration. And so we come to the question, well, what about the three major prophets? Isaiah preceded Jeremiah by approximately 50 years. And his principal message was to um, the uh, northern kingdom, uh, it was to Judah, I'm sorry, um, even though he did prophesy into the future to the returning exiles. Um, let us just now think about Jeremiah. If you can just go back one slide, please, to um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah started prophesying approximately 35 years before Ezekiel. Now, Jeremiah preached for more than 40 years to Judah, the southern kingdom, warning them repeatedly and their kings and their priests that unless you repent, there will be this judgment, this exile, this deportation. Ezekiel, he also prophesied, but to those in exile in Babylon. So we'll go on to the next slide. The first stage of the uh, exile took place in 597, and King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, many nobles, and many priests, including Ezekiel, were deported to Babylon. And then in 593, which is the next slide, um, five years after the exile, Ezekiel is 30 years of age, and he begins his preaching ministry. He was preaching to the exiles. Most of these exiles were longing to return to Jerusalem and to Judah. They wanted to see their land once again. They wanted to go again to the temple. Even though they had prostituted the covenant, even though they had wandered away from God, the symbolism was there, the ritual was there, the ceremony was there, and they wanted to return to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the land. They could not imagine for one moment that God could ever destroy Jerusalem or the temple. This is where God resides. This is where his glory resides. God will never allow this. And just six years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. And so Ezekiel preaches to a disillusioned, exiled community. What is his message? This is the overview of the book. So we'll go on to the next slide. 597, he was deported. Five years later, he began his prophetic ministry, 
And for the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel, his essential message is preach the word. 12 years later, in 587, now for those of you who are not familiar with the Hebrew way of calculating dates, every year that is begun counts as a whole year. So don't take me up on the mathematics afterwards. Huh? So 12 years later, um, Ezekiel changed his message and for the next few chapters, from chapters 33 to 39, preach the grace of God. And then as from chapter 40 to the end of the book, preach the glory of God. Now that resembles very much the basic message of the prophets. Denounce sin, warn of judgment, but preach restoration. Preach the word, preach grace, and preach glory. So this morning, we're just going to look at that first part, preach the word of God. Now we've already read through the text. Um, I won't, yes, I will read it again if you don't mind, if you don't mind. I'm going to read from the screen. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I sent you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels, who have rebelled against me. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, it is almost better to translate this, and whether they listen, because you can hear without listening, and whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. I must confess that after the party that you had last Sunday, this is not the best of messages for a Sunday morning, but nevertheless, this is the message. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, 
Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. This is the word of God. Ezekiel's call corresponds with a very dark period in the history of God's people. Spiritual decline, covenant is flouted, morals are perverted. And in this book, in the first two sections, God presents himself, himself in two very peculiar ways. In the first section, the first 32 chapters, he presents himself as being a spouse, a husband, and in the second section, from 33 to 39, as a shepherd. These two presentations of God as a husband and as a shepherd are what we call typology. That is to say, when symbols are used in the Old Testament to prefigure events that are going to take place in the New Testament. So when we have the sacrificial system with the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the offering of a lamb, this prefigures something that is taking place in the New Testament. Uh, when Christ offers himself as the Lamb of God. And when God presents himself as a husband or as a shepherd, this is typology in the sense that it prefigures a reality to come in the New Testament. However, in these first 32 chapters of Ezekiel, yes, God presents himself as a husband, but as a jilted and cuckolded husband. And the language that God uses here to describe his feelings, his pain, his hurt, is blue. It is shocking. It is scary. It is raw. And if you go into the book of Hosea, you will find that it's just as shocking. Such language in the mouth of God to describe his pain. But that just reminds us that we're not dealing here with an impersonal, distant God who coldly analyzes the faithlessness of Israel. We are dealing with a personal God who has real emotions. And like a jilted husband goes through all of the emotions that any spouse would go through if they had been jilted and forsaken by their spouse. Whether it be unbelief, whether it be jealousy, whether it be anger, whether it be hatred, this whole gamut of relations God goes through, but uniquely in his case, perfectly, justly, totally understandably, and God goes through all of these emotions. That is the God that we have. And this teaching about God with his emotions is equally as relevant as the teaching about God concerning his sovereignty, his providence. This is the same God. And this is the God that is hurt when we are unfaithful. This is the God who feels pain 
when we are unfaithful. In the context of these 32 chapters, God at times says, Israel, Judah, you're like a prostitute, but you're worse than a prostitute. Because a prostitute is normally paid for her services. But you are more perverse because you pay for your lovers to sleep with you. This is incredible language in this book. And God holds the leaders primarily responsible. Kings, princes, priests, and prophets. I have a quote from Carson, obviously. To defend a king or a president, it's because I was with him last weekend and I picked this one up. To defend a king or a president because of his economic policies when the moral core has evaporated means we have become as vile as the things we love. It's very, very strong. So let us come back to the text. What does God say about this thematic preach the word? Four brief remarks. The first one is, let's go further down, next one, the task. Thus says the Lord God, you shall speak my words to them. At this point, in chapter 2, God has not given the message to Ezekiel. Before giving him the message, he wants to ensure that Ezekiel will be faithful to preach his words to the people. This is very important. God needs to know that we are going to be faithful to his revealed word. He needs to understand that his whole ministry will depend on his being faithful to the words that God will reveal him to proclaim to the people. He must never fear man, and fearing man, which means the reprisals of both man and could mean the reprisals of the state, when you want to preach faithfully the word. It means you will omit nothing just to please the people. You won't admit, omit, or leave on one side any of the difficult passages which treat the moral issues of our day. You won't leave them on one side. Let me illustrate this a little differently. I don't know whether any of you follow the Galley Report, but in the uh, August issue of this year, in the Galley Report, Galley, who was the former editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, he wrote two articles on elitist evangelicalism. And he admits in both of these articles that he, together with much contemporary evangelicalism, have strived towards being acceptable and credible. And I quote, he says, we have given into a form of cultural accommodation dressed as convictional religion. And he recognizes, even within Christianity Today, which was one of the major journals of the last half of the 20th century, he realizes that 
they felt that they had achieved their main goals when they were invited to speak on CNN or when they were featured in Time magazine. Not when they had preached the word of God. And he admits willingly that he had avoided many of the cultural issues of his day just for being acceptable and credible. And let me illustrate to you how the music goes. When preaching on issues that are controversial, the language changes over time. And so he illustrates with the issue of same-sex marriage. Initially, there is great clarity. This is what the scripture says. Then the language changes to, these are really very complex issues. Then the language changes again. There are no easy answers. And then the language changes again. Here's an exception, an exception. And then the language changes again until it becomes full acceptance. And this is taking place in our society during our lifetime. And this is taking place in the church over the last 25 years. And so, Ezekiel's first message is to describe the task. You must preach and preach only the words that I give you. Secondly, the message. Well, it's not very encouraging, is it? Lamentation, mourning, and woe. Decline. A period of decline. And if you read through these 32 chapters, which I'm sure you will after lunch today, um, <laughs> if you read through these 32 patch, uh, chapters, just to encourage you, um, you will see that a, an incredible number of oracles, parables, uh, sketches, uh, role plays, uh, where Ezekiel has to do some very strange things to illustrate the message to the people in exile. But all of these messages are in order to describe the abominations that are taking place in Israel. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 8, Ezekiel is transported in a vision to Jerusalem and to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, first of all, God places him in the north gate of the temple. Now, the north gate of the temple was where the king came into the temple for the worship. And in the north gate of the temple, Ezekiel saw what is called a statue of jealousy. What does this mean? Well, you have to know that previously during the reign of Manasseh, he had put into the north gate an Asherah pole. And an Asherah pole was an obscene object, many breasts, phallic imagery. And this Asherah pole was placed in the north gate by King Manasseh for the people to worship. And this provoked God to jealousy. And so the first thing that Ezekiel saw was this image of jealousy. God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. And we have to come to grips and to terms with that. Se secondly, God took him a little further on and through, through a hole in the wall, 
Ezekiel looked and he saw 70 elders, perhaps representing the leadership of the people. But he saw 70 elders bowing down to a wall on which were engraved all kinds of reptiles, abominable beasts, and idols. And the leaders in the temple were bowing down to this. Thirdly, Ezekiel is taken to the gate of the temple, and there he sees many women also worshipping Tammuz. And Tammuz was a goddess of uh, the vegetation, goddess of fertility, and these women were worshipping Tammuz. And if you read in antiquity, the worship of Tammuz was always accompanied by ritual prostitution with children, men and women, boys and girls, as from the age of seven. And finally, Ezekiel's taken to the altar. And there where the priests should be offering sacrifices, the priests, instead of offering sacrifices, turn their back on the temple to worship the sun. The message is clear. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. So thirdly, there is the symbolism where God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, take this scroll and eat it. Take this scroll and eat it. And this scroll was written on the front and the back. He took it and he ate it. The text says it was sweet as honey in his mouth. The symbolism here is that before Ezekiel can preach the message to others, the message has to be preached to him. He has to digest. He has to assimilate God's message before he can preach with authority, with anointing to the people. And this is true of any preacher, teacher of the word of God. We are not just those who transmit information. We are transmitting the very words of God. And to transmit those words to others, it has to be, first of all, transmitted to us. It has to penetrate our minds and hearts. But why is it sweet as honey? And that takes us to another text in the book of Revelation. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. How can a message be bitter and sweet? How can we have on the one one hand lamentations, mourning and woe, and yet sweet as honey? Because God's word is sweet and sour. God's word is sweet for those who have understood the message of the gospel and accepted Christ. But God's word is also terrible, horrifying, sour for all those who refuse the message of the gospel. It is sweet and it is sour. And finally, we have 
the reaction. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, or more accurately, whether they listen or refuse to listen. I'm not going to comment that. It's so evident. But I will read a text that Paul sent to Timothy when he was pastor of the church in Ephesus. I charge you, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That is an accurate description of our times. Oh, not universal, I'm not generalizing. Praise God for the many churches who are faithful to God's word and preaching God's word Sunday after Sunday. Praise God for those who are paying the price of being faithful to God's word in the workplace, in the school, in the university, in their neighborhoods. Praise God for all of that. But do not let us ignore that generally speaking in the Western world, we're in a period of decline. And that is therefore the first conclusion because immediately after these words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 or immediately preceding these words to Timothy we have this verse all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work immediately afterwards Paul says to Timothy Preach in season, out season, for a time is coming when nobody will support, accept sound doctrine. Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. And so in conclusion, a first conclusion, we are called as Ezekiel to faithfully communicate all truth. And that is one of the great advantages of expository preaching as we have it here in Westlake. As we go through book after book after book, we're not just, just treating themes as crises arrive in the church. We're going through scripture faithfully. And when we come to themes like adultery or any other moral issue, we're treating them within the context of the Bible storyline. And we have to preach faithfully the truth. We have to assimilate the truth that we communicate to others and whether they listen or they don't listen, that's not our problem. We leave the consequences or the results with him. But then another conclusion, very briefly, which is implicit in these 32 chapters. I said at the beginning that there is typology in these chapters, and one of them is God as a husband. In other words, the marriage relationship is used constantly in all of Scripture, from Genesis through to Revelation, as an illustration in the Old Testament of the relationship between God and his people, and in the New Testament between Christ and his church. This is a fundamental, a fundamental symbol illustration of God's desire to live in an intimate relationship with each one of us. Nothing is more intimate than marriage, Nothing is more intimate than the sexual relationship. And even though there is nothing sexual in God's relationship with, to us, the intimacy that that foresees is what God wants to live with us. And so that begs the question, 
Why on earth, oh Martin, I hope I'm not treading on any toes for next week. <laughs> Why on earth did God invent marriage? Wasn't that the biggest risk that he could ever have taken? Why did he invent marriage? Why did he institute marriage? And just as we run through scripture, it is not good for man to be alone. There is that mutual, complementary support one of the other. So that's one of the reasons. Huh. Procreation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sylvia and I have done our bit with five children. It's up to you now. <laughs> uh, but be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Pleasure. Oh, pleasure. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs, huh? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Wow, that's as erotic as it comes, isn't it? But it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Because it takes away all kinds of sensuality to give us a vision of the intimacy that God wants with us. But the ultimate reason is in Ephesians 5, isn't it? And that's the text that we should really concentrate on. And in Ephesians 5, as from verse 22, God is demonstrating to the marriage relationship the intimacy that he wants with us. And at the same time, he is showing us the goal towards which marriage is pointing. Because if you go into Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, well, what are we invited to? We're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we see the bride descending from heaven to meet up with her heavenly bridegroom. This is what it is all pointing towards. That is why marriage is so intrinsic to the message of the gospel. It is part and parcel of the message of the gospel. And that is why we should do everything to prepare people for marriage, to protect marriage in order that we don't have to live through the painful situation that God led, uh, lived through in Ezekiel. Unfaithfulness with all of its accompanying pain. We are called to live in our marriages as being a signpost to the heavenly Jerusalem that awaits us. Let me recommend a book to you, and then I'll pray. The book is called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. It's by Ray Ortland, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. Um, and I heartily recommend that book to you. Let's pray. Father, as the first song today reminds us, you speak through the prophets. The messages are not always the most pleasant, but they are always, always salutary. Because your first person purpose is not retribution. Your primary purpose is to induce us to repentance and to live a life of intimacy with you. Thank you for the men who have preceded us and have preached your word faithfully. And thank you that we can build on their word and on their testimony. And today we just commit our lives, thinking and ministries into your hands that we might honor and glorify you. For Jesus' sake.
Amen.